What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 277. It's titled, Why ETFs Are Changing. A few episodes ago, episode 273, I mentioned in the U.S., there is over $4 trillion invested in U.S.-sponsored exchange-traded products. That includes about 2,300 exchange-traded funds and another 165 or so exchange-traded notes. That compares to only $794 billion in 2009 in exchange-traded products. Now, ETFs and ETNs are much smaller compared to mutual funds. In the U.S., there are more than 8,000 mutual funds with $15.4 trillion in assets. About 25% is invested in passive index funds. Now, while the mutual fund industry is bigger, it has been losing ground to ETFs. In 2019, there's been more than $135 billion in inflows into ETFs and $200 billion pulling out of mutual funds. Given how ETF's market share is growing and has been growing, as investors, we need to understand what is happening in the ETF space and recognizing mutual funds are not just going to stand by, particularly actively managed mutual funds, and let their market share diminish. So this episode, we're looking at what is changing with ETFs, why it's easier for companies to create ETFs why they're creating actively managed ETFs. And we're going to look at some examples of some new ETFs products are somewhat intriguing. One of the interesting things with ETFs, it's a very concentrated industry. According to a report by CFRA, ETF assets grew by over 90% for the five years ending August 2019. But just 100 funds captured 83% of those assets. And BlackRock and Vanguard managed two-thirds of those funds. Vanguard and BlackRock, which owns the iShares brand, they are the biggest players. And then you have these smaller players around that that are launching more and more ETFs. What are the benefits of ETFs that have allowed their market share to grow at the expense of mutual funds? Well, first, lower fees. The expense ratios on ETFs are lower than mutual funds across the board. And that's not just because ETFs are primarily passive. If we look at index mutual funds compared to passive ETFs, ETFs still have a lower expense ratios because it's less expensive for a fund sponsor to operate an ETF. This was a paragraph from ETF.com. 
Here's what they said. When a mutual fund receives a buy order from a new investor, it has a lot of work to do. First, it must process the order internally, recording who it was that entered the buy order and how much money was deposited with the firm. The fund company must then send out confirmation documents and handle any compliance issues. Then the mutual fund's portfolio manager must go into the market and invest the money, buying and selling securities and paying all the necessary spreads and commissions involved. Now, that was a few years old, that particular paragraph. But there is more shareholder services related to mutual funds versus ETFs because most ETF trades are done in the secondary market with a seller of the ETF selling it to somebody that wants to buy the ETF. Another benefit of ETFs is they're just more tax efficient. To better understand why ETFs are more tax efficient, we have to review how ETFs trade and how they differ from open-end mutual funds. A mutual fund trades at the end of the day. Investors that want to buy into the fund, investors that want to exit the fund, they exit at the fund's net asset value. And then the fund sponsor, if there's a net inflows, will create new shares of that mutual fund. ETFs, as I mentioned, they trade in the secondary market. Individuals that wanted to buy an ETF, they'll go to their broker and they'll put in the trade, and that trade is matched with somebody that wanted to sell the particular ETF. But there are what are known as authorized participants, big institutional players that interact directly with the ETF sponsor. Authorized participants can exchange what's known as the creation basket, It's a reference basket of securities that represent what is owned by the exchange-traded fund. The authorized participant trades that creation basket for new shares of the ETF. Also, the authorized participant can trade shares of the ETF for the holdings that are in that creation basket. Now, these are generally very, very large trades. That process of the ETF sponsor interacting with the authorized participants leads to the creation and redemption of ETF shares. Now, here's the key. The ETF sponsor can choose what goes in that creation basket. And if an authorized participant wants to redeem shares, they give those ETF shares to the sponsor, and then the sponsor can put low-cost basis stock in that creation basket. A low-cost basis stock is a security that is appreciated a great deal in price, and if it was sold, would trigger a large capital gain. But by transferring those low-cost basis securities as part of this share redemption process, the ETF sponsor doesn't have to pass that capital gains to the holders of the ETF. And then the ETF owners don't have to pay taxes. With a mutual fund, the mutual fund has to actually sell the holdings. If there's redemptions, they're selling the underlying holdings, triggering a capital gain that then has to be passed on to the shareholders who pay the capital gains tax. Consequently, ETFs are just more tax efficient. The other benefit of ETFs is the intraday trading the ability to exit or enter 
an asset class anytime during the trading day. And even more so to get access to an illiquid asset class, such as non-investment grade bonds, also called high yield bonds. It's difficult to trade those. They're not terribly liquid, yet retail investors and institutional investors can trade ETFs that are buying those underlying high yield bonds. Now, that's a benefit, but it also is a negative. Many ETFs own illiquid assets that just don't trade very easily. And there is a potential risk if there's massive outflows out of those ETFs. Now, we still have the authorized participants as part of that process. But if there's a breakdown in that trading mechanism, let's say the authorized participants don't want to participate because they don't want to redeem shares of an ETF and get illiquid assets in return that cannot be sold without impacting market prices. That could lead to a breakdown. So there are some challenges with the ETF structure. Another challenge is, as long-term investors, we really don't need intraday liquidity. And with a number of brokers now not charging commissions on ETFs, there could be the tendency to trade more and more. We should be long-term holders of exchange-traded funds. We own them because oftentimes their expense ratios are less, and if it's in a taxable account, they're more tax-efficient. But we shouldn't own them with a short-term trading mentality. These should be long-term investments that happen to have the benefit of being able to exit or enter very quickly. Another negative with the ETFs is as they've gotten to be a bigger and bigger share, there's a lot of trading activity in the underlying holdings of ETFs that have nothing to do with investors having a fundamental view of what the correct price is for that underlying holding. So simply being bought and sold as part of these creation baskets. That potentially could lead to, let's say, a microcap stock whose price is higher than it would be otherwise because it is included in an index that has a number of ETFs tracking that particular index. And so the price of the security is higher, let's say above its intrinsic value, simply because the ETF market is so big. And this is a particular impact on on less liquid securities. Their prices can be pushed up. Now, some argue that if there's a big exit from ETFs, that could work in reverse and, and push the price of those securities down, but that, that's going to have less of an impact on investors in ETFs and more, let's say, an active manager that happens to own that microcap stock that's getting pushed around based on the actions of ETF investors. The other, and I think this is a negative regarding ETFs, is there's just more and more products. And it becomes a confusing marketplace. They're niche products. There's levered ETFs. There's ETFs that short stocks. There's a new ETF that invests just in the pet industry. It's the ProShares Pet Care ETF. PAWS, P-A-W-Z. Now, I'll give ETF sponsors credit. They come up with some really catchy ticker symbols. But PAWS only has $51 million in assets. And more than half of the ETFs in the U.S. have less than $100 million. 90 of those ETFs closed this year. 
so far. 139 ETFs closed last year. ETF sponsors are just launching ETFs to see if they catch on. And your typical ETF needs between 50 and $100 million in assets within five years to, to be successful, to be profitable. That's according to Elizabeth Kashner, who's the director of ETF research at FactSet. Most new ETFs don't reach that. More than 80% of ETFs launched last year gathered less than $50 million by year end. 2% gathered more than a billion dollars. And that, that's a home run. But most don't. FactSet also showed that between 2007 and 2016, 44% of ETFs that had less than $50 million of assets after one year closed, while 30% remained stuck under that threshold. Market Saper, who's chief executive at ProShare, says there's a lot of roadkill out there. He says the challenge is as the industry has more and more participants, it becomes harder to expand out into the marketplace. There's a couple reasons to believe, while there's been a lot of new ETFs, that the number of ETFs in the marketplace is going to explode based on some recent decisions by the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission. Before we look at why the number of ETFs could potentially explode, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Perel and I recently had dinner with some friends who run a retail business. They have multiple stores and an online shop. And they recently used Shopify to better manage their inventory so they could ship online orders out of all of their stores instead of the warehouse. It helped them get a higher conversion rate on their website because of Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers, just like it did for our friends. With the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com david, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com david now to grow your business, no matter what state you're in. Shopify.com slash David. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in my profession, I've seen how important it is to get quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn can help you with that. It's not just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. So hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. 
Terms and conditions apply. The biggest reason why the number of ETFs could explode is that U.S. Security and Exchange Commission changed the rules to make it easier for new ETFs to be created. In late September, they issued a final rule in which they said, the SEC is adopting a new rule under the Investment Company Act of 1940 that will permit exchange-traded funds that satisfy certain conditions to operate without the expense and delay of obtaining an exemptive order. Previously, ETFs needed what was known as an exemptive relief, essentially make an exception that allowed ETFs to operate under the Investment Company Act of 1940. I mean, they had specific permission to launch an ETF, and the SEC had to approve each and every ETF, and it was a very customized and complicated process. Now, under the new rule, an ETF sponsor doesn't need to seek permission to launch new funds. It will be able to just follow certain rules and steps, including providing investors and regulators with a prospectus, and then they can launch the ETF. That makes it much simpler to do, which means there's an incentive to launch more ETFs to see if they can attract enough assets to get to that $50 million or hopefully over $100 million threshold. The second change that could lead to more ETFs is in April, the SEC provided exemptive relief, in this case an, an exception, to allow a company called Presidian Funds to operate a new type of actively managed ETF called Active Shares. These are known as non-transparent ETFs. Right now, an ETF has to, as I mentioned, share what they own on a daily basis, and they make these creation baskets, or they list out holdings as part of the creation basket, and authorized participants can buy and sell the creation basket. Well, that is something active managers don't like. They don't like to share what they're holding in their mutual fund, for example, on a daily basis because their competitors could replicate the portfolio. High-speed investors could use that information to front-run trades and take advantage of the buying and selling by the mutual fund. And so that's one reason there's not been a lot of actively managed ETFs. But with this new structure, the ETF sponsors won't have to share their holdings every day. And the asset management industry was excited. Presidian Funds mentioned that American Century, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, BlackRock, Capital Research, Leg Mason, Clearbridge, Royce, and Nationwide have all licensed this active share technology. The way that this works is the ETF needs to provide what's known as a verified intraday indicative value. So not necessarily the net asset value that would list out all the holdings divided by the number of shares and the specific holdings. This would be an intraday indicative value. And then the authorized participants, instead of dealing directly with the ETF, they would deal with a AP representative. I guess the AP stands for Authorized Participant Representative. Essentially, someone that actually knows what the ETF holds and will be 
taking money from authorized participants, buying and selling securities based on the reference basket that the AP representative knows, and that AP representative interacts with the fund sponsor. Now, the AP representative has an agreement with ETF that they won't disclose or misuse this non-public information of knowing what the ETF owns. But essentially, there's a go-between between the authorized participants and the ETF sponsor that will be helping to create new shares and redeem shares. Now, one of the reasons to have authorized participants at all is to keep the market price of the ETF in line with the net asset value. Authorized participants can make essentially arbitrage profits if there's a discrepancy between the ETF price and the net asset value. We'll see if this new structure works. Of course, nobody will actually know if the NAV is correct or not because they're going to be, I guess, providing this intraday indicative value, which could differ from the market price. And then an authorized participant could interact, I guess, with this AP representative. It's a very confusing structure. And I love this quote from Ben Johnson, director of global ETF research at Morningstar. He says, this solves the problem for asset managers, but it does little for the end clients. For active managers, this is just a new way of packaging their investment strategies. That's why they're excited about it. They can now market actively managed strategies as an ETF. But as investors, should we buy these actively managed ETFs? I came across a fascinating study this week. It's a paper titled, Are Passive Funds Really Superior Investments? An Investor Perspective by Edwin J. Elton, Martin J. Gruber, and Andre de Sousa. It was published in the Financial Analyst Journal. And they had a really, really cool idea to show how the vast majority of ETFs can outperform active managers. What they did is they took two years of the return pattern of a particular active mutual fund. And then they figured out which combination of five ETFs most closely replicated the performance of that mutual fund. They did a regression analysis, and they were seeking to find the best fit of ETFs. We would do this at my investment advisory firm. We would take a manager's returns stream on a monthly basis, and then the regression analysis would break down and figure out which combinations of styles large-cap growth, large-cap value, mid-cap value, best replicated the manager's historical returns. That's what these academics did. Except here's the twist. They figured out the best fit, and then they compared the performance of that ETF mix to the fund's performance in the following periods. And what they found is the ETF portfolios outperformed the active mutual fund 78% of the time. And if they considered the loads and transaction cost, that ETF portfolio outperformed the active mutual funds 90% of the time. And the average extra return was about 1.4% per year. What that shows is much of what is considered 
outperformance by active managers due to security selection is their factor exposure. It's their value tilt. It's their growth tilt. It's their small cap tilt. It's not the security selection. Which means we can do that on our own. We can get whatever factor exposure we want. Let's say value or small cap or dividend yield using cost-effective ETFs, and if the expense ratio is lower, index mutual funds, and not have to pay the higher fees of active managers. Another ETF structure that's come out in the past year that I find intriguing is what is known as outcome-based ETFs, and they're based on CBOE target outcome indices. Here's what the Chicago Board of Exchange describes them as. Many investments target speculative returns with uncertain levels of risk over an uncertain period of time. While opportunistic, this approach to investing brings a high degree of uncertainty. Target outcome indices encourage targeting a specific defined return or payoff with an allowance for a specific defined risk at a specific point of time in the future. An example of what they're saying is the Innovator S&P 500 Buffer ETFs. These are ETFs where the upside is capped, and then you take part of the loss up to a certain level, let's say the first 5% of the loss. Then the ETF takes the loss from negative 5% to negative 30%, and then you get all the losses above that. Now, that's complicated. I went over that example in PLUS episode 246. PLUS members get an extra premium podcast each week, a Q&A episode. We go over a number of different topics, often very specific topics on specific ETFs. If you go to moneyfortherestofus.com, you can listen to PLUS episode 246 without being a member, and you can learn more about these S&P 500 buffer ETFs. The strategy that I wanted to talk about today is the CBOE VEST S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Target ETF. The ticker is KNG. The S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Index is a list of companies in the S&P 500 with a track record of increasing dividends for at least 25 consecutive years. And these tend to be large cap blue chip type companies. Now, one of the problems with this index, maybe it's a problem, is that the dividend yield isn't that high. So the dividend yield on the S&P 500 dividends aristocrats is only about 2%, about the same as the S&P 500. So CBOE created an index where using option strategies, the dividend yields higher. It's 3.49%. And they do that by selling or writing call options on the portions of the holdings. They hold all the stocks in that index. And then on about 10% of the companies, they write call options. And so they collect the premium. They collect income from selling those options. But then they don't get to participate in the upside of those stock holdings. So essentially, in order to get a higher dividend yield, 3.5% instead of 2%, an investor is, is giving up the upside on about 10% of the holdings of the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Index. 
kind of complicated, isn't it? Now, one of the things I did then is compare that to the ProShares S&P 500 dividend aristocrats. Its ticker is NOBL. This year, it's up 23.67%. The CBOE, KNG, is up 23%. I would have thought the performance differential would be greater that NOBL would have outperformed by more because, again, KNG is writing call options on about 10%. And so the way to look at this is, one, the expense ratio on the CBOE is ETF is 0.75% compared to 0.35% for the ProShares SP500 dividend aristocrats ETFs. With this CBOE ETF, you get an additional 1.1% dividend yield after adjusting for the higher expense ratio. And to get that 1.1% extra dividend yield, you only get approximately 90% of the price appreciation of the index. So in theory, this strategy would underperform the dividend aristocrats index when that index or an ETF tracking it returned greater than 10% in a given year. Because 10%, if 10% is about 1%, which was the higher dividend yield that you're getting with the CBOE ETF. The point is, with any investments, we need to understand what drives the performance. What's the upside? It's one of the questions in my book. Question three, what is the upside? Understand what the drivers are. And what is the downside? Question four, understand the downside. These, both of these investments, you are exposed to the entire downside of the S&P dividends aristocrats index falling. But the bottom line is the ETF world is changing. There's going to be more and more ETFs. There's going to be more actively managed ETFs. Just because there's more of them doesn't mean we have to invest in them. And recognize ETFs, you can get the factor exposure you want and more than likely will outperform active managers. That's episode 277. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. And I'll email those links to you each week the articles that I discussed in that week's episode. I also send an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to the email list. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.